Hello, everyone. Uh, so we recorded this episode and then a bunch of stuff happened, namely the protests uh, for justice for George Floyd have escalated and, and become even more prominent and now have become, thankfully and, and wonderfully, about complete police brutality reform and also, in my mind, abolition, which I'm very excited for because I think the momentum from all of this is I mean, it's ringing similar to me to what happened in the civil rights era. Um, I feel like there's a lot of uh, hope for like massive change, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. And um, they're marching on Washington in August. Incredible. And also uh, the way that everyone has mobilized in in, um, support of Black Lives Matter has been so um, just historic and obviously having social media and being able to see the ways in which the media is lying to us about what's happening, Mm -hmm. the ways in which, um, you know, for example, the Buffalo PD yesterday released a statement saying that an elderly man had uh, tripped and fallen. Uh, But luckily uh, we had video evidence that police had shoved him and then left him there. While he was bleeding from his head. Yes. So uh, I'm very... uh, I mean, usually I'm so pessimistic. I'm very optimistic about uh, people being able to actually see uh, what goes on in police departments and how corrupt and um, racist that they are. So we wanted to hop on and uh, obviously show our complete support with Black Lives Matter. And also, I have some resources I want to talk about. So there is a a group called MPD 150, which has uh, there's this building a police Uh, Police Free Future Frequently Asked Questions zine that's been going around that I've seen um, that's been really, really incredible to read. It's basically just about uh, how do we abolish the police and how do we deal with crime and chaos and what are the alternatives to traditional policing, which I'm very um, into. And then there's also Black Visions Collective, which has been doing a lot. Um, There's also just generally Black Lives Matter. Um, there's also, we'll put in the show notes, some bailout funds. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been tons of, of bailout funds uh, for protesters. And I would encourage uh, anyone who is only getting their news from the TV news to hop over onto social media. Yeah, Twitter, Twitter is doing a really good job of mm-hmm. archiving all of the incidences of police brutality and making mm-hmm. it easy and sharing like the correct information. And mm-hmm. I find that that's the stuff you need to send to your friends and family who just aren't getting it. Yes. You know, I think if you have privilege, there is such a, uh, a scary idea in terms of changing everything about the way that policing or the justice system works. Uh, however, I, you know, I think uh, nothing has been won without a hard fight. And, you know, at a certain point, abolishing slavery seemed wildly great like oh my god we could never do it and so i just encourage you to think bigger and to think more about the collectiveness of what needs to change and i think if you look into what it actually means when people say defund the police and how the police are being asked to do far too much with little to no training and how so much of what they're asked to do should actually be done by social workers not even social workers. There's they uh, yes, social workers, but they're also uh, mental health professionals. Mental health professionals, and I mean, look into MPD 150. That's been great. Um, there's also in Los Angeles, and I'm sure there's this for other places. The People's Budget, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, what the uh, 
you know, millions or whatever dollars that go into the police department, what they actually could be used for. Um, and so I just think, you know, there, there's a lot of momentum in terms of like real huge change. And um, I would encourage you to dream big about it because I think there's, you know, there's two there's two minds that I've been seeing. I've been seeing some people who are uh, very into incremental change. And I've seen some people who are happy to to have this movement be for, you know, total defunding and abolition of the of the police. There's also a difference between defunding where you yes, reduce correct. their budget versus abolition. So educate right. yourself and see what feels right to you. Obviously, we want justice for George Floyd. There's also, you know, the the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor are um, were not uh, charged with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, there's tons of other. It's not just about one black person. There's, you know, uh, 601 people were killed by the LAPD in the la- in. Um, I'm not sure what, in what time frame, but that's too many people. So uh, just make sure that you're not, you know, focusing on looting or you're not um concerned more about um buildings than about people and we'll put more resources in the show notes and um yeah this ends our update to this episode correct (laughs) and just also letting you guys know that when we recorded this episode things were not where they are now and therefore that's why we're talking about you know just to give you a point of view of what where we were coming from when we recorded it and how now oh man defund the like (laughs) things have changed and and we would have been much more aggressive had things have happened then do you know what I mean (laughs) no yeah 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 I think we were very focused on Trump which let's not not focus on Trump right (laughs) um he is he did just put something forward to try to stop same-sex couples from adopting so he's he's out there doing stuff um so (laughs) So, uh, you know, he did tear gas a bunch of protesters so you could take a picture with a Bible. So let's not ignore him. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And we wanted to take the time to acknowledge what's going on and to acknowledge the pain everyone is feeling and to provide some resources in our show description. Yes. um, And to stay safe, but also keep fighting and keep believing that change is possible. And that obviously, I mean, this show, me and Allison are... 100% 100% Black Lives Matter on the side of the protesters do like mm-hmm. no it, no equivocation whatsoever. <laughs> um, that's where In we case stand. that wasn't clear from our other 60 yeah. episodes. <laughs> sure. But I just want I think it's important to say that like, hi, we th- we this support is, you 100 mm-hmm. percent. Um, so, OK, great. We did it. Enjoy the show. <laughs> just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, director, and weightlifter if you count five-pound dumbbells. I count them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and oh gosh, unprepared. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I should have saved that, Um, but yeah, let's use unprepared. Saved it for what? Like another time when I'll probably be unprepared. Well, you wasted it. You can't use it again. Yeah, I guess not. I wish people... Here's the thing. Uh, An avid listener, will you write down all Mm. the things we've said and then send it to us so we know what we've said? I've thought about going back and doing that. And then I thought, eh, too much work. Yeah, let a fan do it. We'll pay you $5. I'll... I'll, uh, Okay, yeah, I'll pay $5. (laughs) 
I was like, why do I, what am I, I, that, I got nothing to lose. I'll pay you five bucks to do it. <laughs> this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Oh, ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. You're I'm keeping with this unprepared theme today. I'm fully asleep. No, I just like, um, I mean, I know that we try not to like date these, but my brain has been exploded. So like as we're recording this today is like all the protests in um, Minneapolis and woof, I it, it's like very um, hard to concentrate. I mean, it's interesting to hop on this platform and try to make it evergreen, but also be like, I mean, this is evergreen, right? Like this type of thing happens all the time. What we're talking about is the protests regarding um, George Floyd. And uh, obviously I think Allison and I both agree Black Lives Matter and we're like on the side of the protesters. Uh, but yeah, it's like, it's fun. It's weird to be like, I could say this now and then we'll be like, oh, it won't be real. It'll be relevant. Like, yeah. it'll be relevant. So it's, it's been relevant and it continues to be relevant. I think we have a good guest for that. So our guest this week is John Lovett um, of the Love It and Leave It podcast uh, and also a speechwriter um, and just like political aficionado. And we're going to talk about the power of language in terms of like political speeches and how do you persuade? How do you turn the tide? How do you comfort a nation? Um, and I think like that's something that is incredibly relevant now considering we're, we have we're a president it. who can't do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so I'm glad that that's our guest today. And later we'll be discussing exposure therapy. Allison is an expert. But first, hit it. International question. International question. International question. Gia, Canada. Some really good names lately. Gia is a very sexy name. Ooh, Okay. What if it she's is. underage, Gabby? I didn't say she was sexy. <laughs> I just said her name is sexy. So Gia asks, should a relationship be easy? I'm in a four-year relationship that is, for the most part, great. We have a lot in common. We have similar goals for the future, and we have a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. However, every once in a while, our communication breaks down. I'm much more sensitive and emotionally needy person, while he is very pragmatic and has difficulty expressing how he feels. So a few times a year, we'll have a big, exhausting fight that stems from this root issue. My concern is that even though we are compatible in nine out of ten categories, that this incompatibility is something we can't really change. We both try to make an effort in bridging this gap, but at the end of the day, I don't know if it will ever go away. So I guess my question is, should my relationship be easier than this? I've often heard that a good relationship should be easy. Is this a realistic issue to overcome? And if it never properly goes away, is it worth staying in a relationship that isn't always smooth sailing? Well, I mean, it sounds like it's usually smooth sailing. Like, it sounds like only having these big fights, like, you know, once or twice a year doesn't seem that bad well. to me. <laughs> I mean, I've been in relationships where we didn't fight at all. And that was terrible because that showed that we weren't really communicating or there wasn't real. It was like very like a friendship. <laughs> well, I, I would say that I think that there are going to be struggles and they're going to be hard times, but fighting is different. So I think that you can disagree, but it yeah. sounds like these are kind of ex somewhat explosive and I think the fact that it's the same issue over and over and over again mm -hmm. is a problem. 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, communication is is a huge thing, but you don't have to do it alone. Like, I think like if communication seems to be the main problem, why not see a couples therapist? Like, yeah, why I, not have a third person help you with the bridging the communication gap? And I'm also curious, like what the tone of those fights are, you know, mm-hmm. so like the couple that lives above us is constantly screaming at each other mm. and like throwing FUs and like, like, yeah, so, it can't be like that. Right. So like, is are those fights still respectful? Like, mm-hmm. is it frustrating, but you're still treating each other with respect and love and care? Or mm-hmm. are you like saying stuff that you wish you could take back and it like it becomes a huge explosion, you know, so does it I, immediately become like a personal attack rather right. than like, oh, you're not understanding me? Does it go from you're not understanding me to fuck you forever? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of it depends on like how you're communicating to each other in those fights. True. So if you have like an unhealthy fighting style, then the fact that you're having a couple of explosive fights a, a couple times a year is a big deal. That's true. Um, Cause that's really damaging. So I think I'm picturing, it, I guess I was picturing like, like not that explosive of a fight. Well, because, but it seems to be really bothering her. Yeah. Yeah. But I think also there's this depiction of relationships as needing to be perfect. There's two things. There's depictions of relationships as needing to be perfect. And then there's picture depictions of relationships where it's like, that's fully abusive and they're like, this is romance. And I feel like there's never a depiction of like a couple in the middle. I think, yeah, I think you have to figure out like the tone of the fights, but also I don't think it's fair to say like never fight. No, I'm not saying that. I would say that like you're asking, should relationships be easy? But the real thing is, is life easy? And the answer is no. So (laughs) (laughs) you're going to have issues. Yeah. But I think what's important is that you remain on the same team. Yes. Huge. Right. So that's why that's why if you're working together to communicate effectively and the fights are just like, oh, we're not like on the same page. But if the fights are like we are enemies. Right. And like this person doesn't have my best interests and nobody is assuming good intentions. Um, that's like a big part of my like fighting style or whatever with my partner, even though we, we fought maybe like four times, but the, the fighting style is like, is everyone assuming there are good intentions? Mm -hmm. Like I'm never assuming that Mal is, is out to get me. Right. And like Mal really kind of struggles with assuming that I have good intentions. So that's an interesting, like, I feel like the boyfriend where I, it's very hard for me to communicate like feelings. It's hard for me to respond to someone who is mal's a little bit needy Mm -hmm. so it's like as long as we both assume that things are coming from love it's like very like we want to work it out like every fight is like not like we're gonna break up it's like okay how can we work this out and if that's your like end goal of the fight rather than how can i hurt this person or how can we break up then like that's the the fight And I think that like, again, this idea of like relationships should be easy. It's like, what are the issues in your life? You know, like if your issue in your life is your relationship, then that's not good. But if like, let's say someone's parent is terminally ill, Mm -hmm. like that relationship for a bit is not going to be easy because one person is in like extreme pain and and, like probably both people are. And that's a really Mm -hmm. tough time in your life. And it's, and it's not going to be like smooth sailing, but Mm -hmm. if you like remain on the same team and you like get through life's hardships together, Mm -hmm. then that's what's important. But if Mm -hmm. like, it's not easy because you 
your two personalities are just constantly Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. getting along then I think that that's not a great fit yeah and where's the fighting come from like with my ex I felt like the fights popped up out of like she created them Mm -hmm. versus like if something happens like you said like how does the fight start like look at how does it start what is causing it and then you know also to both of you like at the end of the fight you really should like have action items like you really should sit down and be like what are we going to do differently and and the one thing that is worrisome to me is that it seems like you guys keep repeating the same habits. That's what I mean. Like, what are the action items? What are we going to change? What can we not do again? What boundary was crossed? Like, hey, I don't want you to bring up this thing. OK, like, you know what I mean? Like, what what are the action items? Like when I bring this up and I don't and you don't want to talk about it, what will we do then? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, just come up with like, what are we going to do differently? Yeah. And have those conversations not during the fight. No, no, no. After, after. Yeah. Or even before, you know. Yeah. A different time. Right. After you hear this podcast, maybe sit him down and really go over stuff. Yeah. Have like specific action items, like even just like what would make you feel good or like what is the safe word for I don't want to talk right now or something like that. Like very explicit. I also think you have to be true to yourself. And if the idea of spending 50 years with this person and having the same fight Mm -hmm. two or three times a year is fucking exhausting Mm -hmm. (laughs) then you know like obviously you're not going to be compatible about everything but Mm -hmm. you have to be compatible about the important things and the important things are different to everyone so if for you these fights are so emotionally draining and so triggering and so traumatic then that's a big deal so even if you're nine out of ten that Mm -hmm. one that one percent is important versus other people who kind of bounce back from fights faster. It's not that big of a deal. So that incompatibility wouldn't matter as much to them. Yes. And communication styles can evolve and you can get on the same page and you can like have a therapy session where you like figure it out or like you can, you can, uh, adjust communication style so you saying like well it'll never change like that's not true like people grow and adapt and learn what other people need and you know it's been four years so I feel like you guys should maybe be further along in that but um but yeah I mean I think relationships should be fun you know what I mean like easy is like an interesting word like I think you should be having fun I don't think it should be all work I don't think it should be like we're working on this you know, constantly like and not having any fun and not like actually enjoying each other. Like it's that thing of like, who was I talking to where it was like, maybe it was for scam goddess, but it was like, why do you date people that you clearly hate? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, why are you with someone if you like don't enjoy being around them and you're not having fun? So like easy in my head went to like, is the relationship fun and worthwhile and like you're actually having a good time also. I mean, the person needs to primarily bring you joy and support. Joy, and if, yeah. And if that's not the case, then it's going to be a lot tougher. And again, going back to life is tough. So this is an area of your life that you don't want, that you want to get strength from, mm-hmm. not have to also work on all the time. I also feel like in my past relationships, when I've been arguing with someone I'm dating and I feel as though it's wasting my time, like then I would rather be single. Like if Mm -hmm. it's like, oh my God, I'm spending so much time in these like hours long fights with this person and like, and this is just me, Gabby, 
And I could have written a novel in that time. Like, you know, is the relationship serving you and lifting you up? Or is it like eating you alive, draining your emotions and wasting your time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, with Jake, it's like, it feels definitely easier than any other relationship. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I've really come to to accept that I do a lot better with someone who's much more like me than the opposite of me. I think Mm -hmm. like this idea of like opposites attract really did not work for me and made my relationships much harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, Mal and I have been separated during this pandemic, uh, although they are moving here. But that um, that has been like tough. And that's the thing that you're saying of like the outside world. Like Mal was like, we like fought yesterday. And I'm like, uh yeah tensions are high Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it has nothing to do with us like we are uh living through like civil unrest like a medical emergency like you know nobody's gonna be in the greatest mood but again how do you treat each other in the hard times that's what's important yes and so like if something sparks it's sort of like well okay but like before all of this everything was fine. So if it's like, like, no, but I was, would say if you had a, if you have a bad fight and the way that you treat each other is poor in that fight, it of doesn't course. matter if the other stuff is good. Yes, you have to we, maintain a level of like respect and courtesy towards your partner always. This is what I'm saying. And so we don't do that. You have to acknowledge what's going on outside. So it's like, not like I suck or mouse sucks. It's like, we'll be like, oh man. Yeah. Sorry. Like, you know, pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> like you have to be aware that like, it's not, like of what else is going on in the context of the fights and stuff and Mm -hmm. and like the context of but like if there isn't a context and they just kind of spring out of nowhere like it was with my ex that's like that's whiplash I was constantly confused I was like being drained like I didn't understand why I was in trouble yeah I think like it was just like not sustainable because it wasn't coming from a place of um trying to work together and be partners Right. Well, we hope that helped. Uh, let us know if you break up. Uh, if you want to submit your international oh question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, John Lovett. Stay tuned. Stay tuned? Yes, yeah, stay tuned. Stay attuned. Ooh, I'm here. Just between Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. Our guest this week is former presidential speechwriter and host of Love It or Leave It and of Pod Save America, uh, John Lovett. Hi. Hi. That was such a dramatic introduction. I did not know <laughs> what I was in. Yeah, we, we are prone to hyperbole mm-hmm. here on this show. <laughs> I don't know. This could be the toughest questions we've ever asked. That's true. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. I don't know, certainly. It's, I mean, you should know. I don't know. Soon. It's too soon. It's too <laughs> soon. Yeah. You do so much um, across the board, on, especially in the podcasting world, but we actually wanted to kind of dive into what it was like to be a speechwriter because as we know, um, I don't know who's writing Trump's speeches, but <laughs> yeah. <if> anyone. <laughs> so it's sort of a group effort in a 4chan message board. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what compelled you to become a speechwriter? I liked politics. I was interested in politics. You know, I was a closeted gay kid growing up. And 
I think politics was a place where you could basically give voice to your, you know, it, it was a place to give voice to a feeling of being marginalized that I wasn't able to actually talk about. So I was able to sort of mm -hmm. use politics as a way to express myself uh, as something sort of adjacent to what I was actually feeling. And then, you know, I just was drawn to it because I watched The West Wing in high school. I thought of presidential speech writing as this special rarefied thing. And I wanted to try it. I just sort of felt like there was, I could contribute something there. And so, you know, I wrote op-eds in my college newspaper. I volunteered on campaigns and uh, was lucky enough to get the chance to do it. I guess I felt like it was suited to my ability to yell and rant and talk about politics, um, which would come in handy later, but was somewhat useful in the speech writing phase, I guess. I just watched the Trump press conference that was unhelpful in mm -hmm, its entirety sure. just now. Um, and so, like, ideally, in times of crisis, like, what makes, like, a good speech? So you immediately want to make it all about yourself and the kind of grievances <laughs> that you're feeling, no matter how small they sure. are compared to what other people are going to. You want to be the center of every controversy. And then you want to find the kind of fissures, the deepest, the deepest cracks in our society, the broken places. You want to find the places where there might be air bubbles inside of the vase that is American culture. Mm -hmm. And then you want to turn the heat up. You want to really see what happens if you can get those bubbles to burst to see if via your words you can make the entire vase, again, a metaphor for our society uh, to fall apart. You know, I uh, it's the real answer, obviously, is we've gone too far before Trump in kind of investing in this person of the president, these important leadership roles beyond the purview of what's in the job in the Constitution. You know, this is America. This This is not supposed to be a a ruler. And, and so I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with how much our culture now, because of the nationalization of the news, looks to the president to be the be all and end all of, of important moments. That said, there is a really important role for the president to play in speaking to people's fears and anxieties, channeling people's fears and anxieties into a healthy direction, uh, uh, channeling uh, people's hopes for the country into a productive direction, you know, at a moment like this, I think, you know, there's, you know, this, you know, Trump does things that are wrong, but there's also a ton of things that are missing that a better person would do right. You know, Trump won't wear a mask. A president would not just be wearing a mask right now. They'd be thinking really hard with a bunch of advisors, like, how can we really make sure that everybody understands the importance of masks? Let's get, let's do a video where we get Tom Hanks and LeBron and Oprah and and Meryl Streep and, uh, you know, Dua Lipa to put on masks. And we're not doing it without her. Right. It ha <laughs> obviously has to include Dua Lipa. Dual break, deal bre a dual, a dual break. <laughs> Yeah, if you want the gays involved in any way, it must include Dua Lipa. That's that's the rule. That's the rule. Yeah. But so so um but that but like organizing people around these better virtues. And the other piece of it too is like we're all like at home. You know, there are some people that have to work and there's some people doing whether it's, you know, grocery deliveries or working in a hospital or or just taking on jobs that they have to do just to live. But there's also a lot of people at home doing their best to kind of through inaction, what feels like inaction, like be supportive, like help people by by being mm -hmm. a being a fellow human being and staying home. And I don't care who you are, like I don't care how cynical you are, I don't care how much you think that you're above it. 
People want to be told like, hey, I see you doing that. And I'm grateful. You know, it's a really nice thing that you're doing and it's really good. And it may feel like you're not doing something, but actually you're actually by staying home, even though it feels like an action, you're helping a lot of people. Thank you. And Trump incites violence all the time. And, and, you know, they call, you know, there's a term for it, right? Like stochastic terrorism. It's a silly term, but it just means no one person, he can't, he's not actually responsible for any specific act, but he's encouraging things to go wrong. And, and if you put enough mm-hmm. filth into the world, somebody's going to grab onto it and randomly use it as a justification. And we see that with coronavirus, you know, he, by being against masks and by insulting masks and all the rest, like, is he responsible for any one person's decision? No, but collectively he's hurting us by encouraging mm-hmm. so many people not to participate anyway. No, yeah, so that's what I want to talk about because, like, the power of words coming from a specific person. I mean, does it? do you think anybody is writing what he's saying? Do you think that there's, like, anyone who's aware of the power of the speech, you know? <laughs> Two different questions, I guess. Two different yeah, questions. No, I'm thinking yeah, yeah, about yeah. it. I mean, look, he has speech writers. He has C plus Santa Monica fascist Stephen Miller writing speeches. I think there are others that are writing speeches. Uh, do any of them understand what the job of being president really is? Either they understand it and can't get him to do it, or they don't understand it, or they don't care. But, you know, White Houses reflect the person at the top. The White House has had an incredible amount of turnover. New chiefs of staff, new writers, new communications directors, new press secretaries. Uh, And through it all, the tone and tenor that has come from this building is identical. And the reason it is, is because it all flows from him. I don't care. I don't care if you have the greatest speechwriter on earth in that building. It wouldn't matter because uh, maybe they would be, maybe the sentences would be more beautifully structured and that'd be an improvement. But the, 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 the sentiment would be the same. Mm -hmm. I feel like in the past, like these presidential speeches were pretty much the only time when the president would be like directly, you know, addressing America. And now with the addition of social media, they can like address America a hundred times a day. <laughs> so when you were a speechwriter, like what was the line there? Like how much did you guys rely on on like Twitter and social media? And how much did you try to kind of like separate him as someone who is more presidential and more just speaking on like major platforms? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think when I was a speechwriter in the White House, that's 2000 and 9, 2010, 2011. And uh, it's it's sort of the beginning of figuring out how mm-hmm. social media is used and who would have accounts and who wouldn't have accounts. And are they personal mm-hmm. accounts? Are they professional accounts? Are they archived? Like, who's in, like, like, so they were sorting those kinds of things out at the time. But the general direction, I think, has been, has been clear for a while, which is uh, as the media has become more fractured and there are fewer platforms that reach everybody, being a, the bully pulpit, like the president's ability to reach millions and millions of people at once uh, has become more about kind of casting a wide net and doing the major networks, but also looking for opportunities to get around that and get your message out directly. That's ads, that's videos on Facebook, that's tweets, uh, that's speaking to, uh, you know, podcasts, whatever it may be. But the, the, the going around the traditional media and trying to get to people directly has been a trend for a while. I remember Carl Rove and George W. Bush, like their campaign, being so proud of the fact that he was doing interviews with fishing magazines because it was a way to speak directly to people through um, the medium sure. of fishing magazines. Sure. Imagine reading a fishing magazine. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> it probably would be a good place to start. I mean, we're putting it down, but I don't, I, there's probably a lot of insights in there for someone like me because I don't know. I don't have a rod and re- a reel. That's you know, true. I have no tackle box. So, yeah. 
So, okay, I have a question about choosing words. Like, so if you're writing a speech and you're choosing how to frame something, right? So like, for example, Trump saying Wuhan virus or China virus or the use of the word thugs to describe the protesters. When you're writing speeches, like how important is it to be like, okay, how am I going to exactly phrase this? And like, it might seem obvious, but like, what does it mean to choose those words, you know? So there, I feel like there's two things going on with, with Trump and this stuff. One is he's just obviously doesn't, you know, he's, he's trying to incite racial animus and he's doing it willingly. I mean, you go look and there's the statement he made about the the anti-mask and anti-shutdown protesters, the mostly white people carrying assault rifles and 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 intimidating people in Michigan and elsewhere. And it's like, these are good people. Just tell them you love them. Give them a hug and a cookie and please send them home. They don't, they're just fine, ordinary Americans standing up for their rights. And then of course, this is thugs, you know, and, and you know, he talks about, uh, you know, looting and shooting and what have you. Uh, so there's that, that, that just comes from him and it's morally reprehensible. But part of what's also broken down is, you know, when I was a speechwriter in the White House, these were really involved processes. So like you would write a speech, even when tweeting was taking off, it would obviously have less scrutiny than a big speech. But but still, like take a speech, you know, you would either potentially you would meet with the president or you'd meet with advisors. And when you'd gather information and tons of research, a bunch of people would would give you the policies you needed to talk about. The researchers would send you ideas for stories you could tell and past speeches. You'd gather all that information, you'd do a draft, and then you would send it to 50 people. You would meet with at the mm-hmm. time, it was David Axelrod, the president's senior advisor, and you would talk through the the emotions you're trying to convey, and he would think out loud about the best way to talk about these really difficult uh, issues. At the time, mostly, you know, we were, uh, you know, for me, mostly, I was working on speeches around the economic crisis. How do you talk about the economic crisis and the steps you're taking to improve people's lives without overstating it and recognizing the pain people still feel? What's the what's the best language to do that that doesn't uh, anger anybody that strikes the right note of real, realism and optimism, all those delicate conversations. Then 50 people are weighing in on the facts and checking every line. Like I remember I worked on a speech about um, scientific discovery and policy. And in it, I had said that on this mission, I'm going to get it wrong, but it was, let's say it's Apollo 8. And it's the, the capsule is is orbiting the moon. And I said on the seventh rotation, X happened. And the, the researcher, fact checker, looked at it and said, I think that was the seventh and a half rotation. So can you please make it over <laughs> right. seven rotations? Because it's not technically seven rotations. And and obviously there are mistakes and you get things wrong or there's blind spots and you just miss like, hey, this is going to be misinterpreted. This sounds too simple. We know what you meant, but in time this will look like you were being uh, deceitful in some way or whatever. There, These you know controversies are natural. But that's the care that went into this work, right? Like real serious care. And that's gone. That's completely gone. There's nobody with the competence or interest in being that careful around Donald Trump because because uh, the only kind of people that'll that'll work for Donald Trump are the kind of people that'll work for Donald Trump. And so that's why there are more errors. That's why there's so much chaos, because uh, there's just no management. There's no, on top of the racism, on top of the malevolence, there's all this incompetence. Do you think that there's a chance for us, if we take back the presidency and, and, the, and the Senate, and to reclaim the power of the truth? Or do you think that now that there's just so much false information through social media and the internet, it'll be an uphill battle? It's such a hard question. And I don't think I have, I feel like your answers and, or, and, and thoughts are just as valid. I, like, I don't know. I, 
what I'm getting at is only that I think it's a problem that collectively, like, we all have to grapple with. We're all experts in social media. Like, I, like, I don't think anyone's experience in politics before this era is going to help you understand how to fight back against what we're seeing right now. I interviewed these two uh, um, professors who wrote a book called uh, Many People Are Saying, and it was a look at how conspiracy theories are changing. And one of the things that's so striking is, all right, you look at like 9-11 conspiracies, and there's all kinds of facts about this argument. And it's obviously, it's, you know, steel doesn't melt at this, you can't melt steel at this temperature. The, right. This doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. This plane wasn't there. Look at the footage of Building 7. It's, it's people, uh, I think, desperate to find an explanation that comports with their anxiety, that sort of makes sense of the world. Like this can't have, this couldn't have just been a group of of random people. This had to be something orchestrated by our own government, right? Like there has to be a deeper explanation because the world needs to make sense. And there's a, a mm-hmm. desire to make sense of the world through conspiracy theories. And so this elaborate fact case is put together and it results in uh, 9-11 truthers. But what Trump does, what's more prevalent now, is a new kind of conspiracism, which is a conspiracy without the theory. He just says, Obamagate, and he leaves it to others to fill in the details, or, you know, rigged, and you leave it to others to fill in the details. Then Mm -hmm. there are these entrepreneurial uh, uh, people like, you know, Alex Jones or politicians uh, like Tom Cotton who grab onto it, the Wuhan virus, it was whatever it is, they grab onto it, and then this whole industry fills in the details until it gets to the Mm -hmm. bottom. So what used to be ground up is now top down. And I think how we figure this out in a world where nothing goes away and lives forever on Twitter is really, really hard. And beyond that, I I just don't know. I just think it's about everybody being vigilant. And also, like, the goal is disorientation. And so just the the collective act of saying to the, to each other, we're not crazy, what we're... (laughs) There is a there is a common reality. All I guess I'd say is that it's all very disorientating. It, it's designed to do that. Our job is to kind of push back continuously, not be exhausted, and remind each other that there is a common reality, and we are describing it. Mm-hmm. We are being gaslit. We are being fed misinformation, and that is meant to stop us from participating. It's meant to tell a whole bunch of people that they can't know what's true, and it's meant to turn a whole other group of people off and pretend that politics doesn't exist, and that's how they win, and that's not how we win. We got to fight back against that. That's all. Yeah, I mean, it's not just social media. It's coming directly from the president's mouth. So I feel like even if there wasn't the ability for him to be on Twitter, he would be doing the same stuff in, like, a fireside chat situation, too. And luckily, like, you're right. that I had never thought of it as top-down now rather than down-up. Yeah, and... And yeah, look, I, like, I think Twitter should enforce its rules. Like, they're not even holding Trump to a higher standard or our standard. They hold Trump to a lower yeah. standard. Like, if there's a set of rules, just apply it. And the problem is they mm-hmm. tie themselves in knots. They really screw themselves because now applying their basic standards that they do to everybody looks like some kind of political act. Like, if they had just mm-hmm. applied their rules from the very beginning, we wouldn't be in this mess. But the idea that, like, Trump won't have a vehicle to spread his filth, like, he could just send a press release with the words he would have tweeted and that will immediately be screenshotted and shared infinitely on Twitter. Oh he, my God. he accused Joe Starborough of murder on Twitter, but he also mm-hmm. did it in an interview. Kellyanne Conway went to the White House lawn this week and threatened a Twitter executive, not even like a top guy, like a mid-level executive by name to direct a bunch of hate at that person. Like these people do not need Twitter to be evil. It helps them. Mm-hmm. It does, but they don't, they don't, they can, they, they have workarounds. Yeah. Do you think that there's the possibility of like restoring at least um, like the respect that the presidency of the United States used to have through having a, a 
candidate or president who is able to reclaim words and speeches and speak, you know, and like kind of have that comfort the people had. Yeah. Yeah. Give the people like words that will, you know, comfort them or at least make people feel safe. Yeah. Or our typical idea of what presidential (laughs) used to be. Let's say we can get to a place where Trump is gone. We've successfully defeated Trump. We've removed him from office. Um, There will be an extraordinary effort to erase the culpability of Republicans. It will begin instantly. It'll begin before he's gone. On top of that, there will be a desire to move on. And there will be an argument made by, I think, well-meaning people that says, do you want to be right or do you want to win? Because there's going to be polling that says, what's more important to you, right? Like, do you want us to focus on the the mistakes and errors that and, and, and injustices of Trump's administration? Or do you want to move forward and try to, whatever the, whatever the kind of misleading questions may be. But right. there's just going to be this incredible pressure to move forward. I mean, that's what, like, and you look at, like, our recent history, you know, Gerald Ford pardons Nixon, uh, uh, the, the Iran-Contra pardons, uh, Trump's pardons, uh, you know, <laughs> them trying to get Flynn off the hook, like, again and again and again. I mean, even in the, you know, Obama era, the desire to move past the um, mm-hmm. crimes of the Bush administration to right. move forward is incredibly, it's incredibly powerful. And so we are not particularly good at looking backwards for accountability. But I do think that that's going to be really important and something we're going to have to fight for, even though there's going to be a lot of good arguments not to do it. I mean, but again, like that's a position I just, what a, what a, what a privileged place that will be if we can be talking about how to hold those who capitulated to Trump accountable once he's gone. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, like, look, to your question, yeah, I mean, I think the good, America is good at forgetting. So, you know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, <laughs> we, once we can have somebody in there that speaks with just like a modicum of respect for human beings and empathy and, mm-hmm. and Joe Biden, you don't have to love him, but you can see that this is a person that has kind of rooted his politics in loss and understands how to relate to people who have been through trauma. And this is a country that has been through trauma and there's value in that. Yeah. I just keep thinking like, now especially like like someone not necessarily obama but like someone could be speaking to people and calming all of this down someone at the top could be giving some kind of address that would you know stop all the violence instead of inciting like it's just so important i think we never really realized how important like the way that the president speaks to the people is until all of a sudden we didn't have it yeah, we didn't think, have the normal i think that's right how important do you think that um, the vice president pick is? Because I know once they hit office, like it's kind of dull, but the campaigning and like their speeches and how their they speak to the people, yeah. do you think that that's really going to be important? It's a really good question. I think it's a, I think it's never been more important than this pick because Joe Biden is older and has signaled that he may not pursue a second term. And he's talked openly about mm-hmm. the fact that he uses his presidency as a bridge to a new generation. So I think that that is a recognition that Biden sees his running as a means of getting rid of Trump uh, and getting the country back to some stable, safe ground from which to make progress. Um, but that will that may very well fall on the shoulders of who of whoever uh, Biden picks and whoever she is is going to immediately be seen as a likely nominee or at least one of the likely nominees in 2024 if we were to win. So I think that makes the pick more important than in the past. That said, is it ever important? It seems like you can really blow it, right? Picking Sarah Palin was a huge (laughs) mistake. 
uh, once it was exposed that she thought um, being asked if she read a magazine was a gotcha question. Uh, do uh, you know? Gosh, were we ever so young? I just thought of that. <laughs> she was. Wow. I mean, think about it. Sarah Palin, you know, in Jurassic Park, when there's like a, a dinosaur will crest the hill and they'll be like, wait, oh, there's a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit scary. And then you realize it's just the first dinosaur and that it's actually a herd of dinosaurs. Yep. She was the first dinosaur over the hill and we just didn't get running fast enough. Yeah. That's a beautiful, terrifying metaphor. <laughs> I mean, it's also crazy because they're not particularly, like, she's not a particularly good speaker. Like, Trump's not a particularly good speaker. Like, in my mind, I'm so like, what are they hitting on for these people, these rallies? Like, I. So I, I feel like, you know, Palin is not good off the cuff, but like, I forget sometimes like she those first that first day when she gave that speech at the convention like she was charismatic that whole thing about lipstick on a pig she had a she had a moment where everyone was like oh she's scary she's really talented and you know she had a fork in the road right like she had a moment where she could have chosen like am I gonna like hunker down like I think she's a really smart ambitious person like she had a moment where she really could have decided like I'm going to become a serious politician but it was mm-hmm. much easier to become uh, what she became. Like it's easier like to famous, famous yeah. reality, yeah. Uh, um, kind of a uh, you know a right wing, a, a right wing pundit personality. Yeah, that was the path she chose. Mm-hmm. And then I think Trump just is very much in that path. And I think it's hard for us to see Trump as anything other than a monster because it's what he is. But he's charismatic. He's charismatic and. Um, he has conviction even when he's lying. I mean, he's spe- that's why those Sarah Cooper videos are so funny. It's because her eyes show what it would be like if somebody actually admitted to the uncertainty and idiocy and ignorance that's propelling the words, right? Like she has that, she does that, but he hides it. And so, you know, he's good at TV. He's charismatic. It's been, and it's the core of his appeal. Yeah. And it's a bummer. It is, because it's so... You watch the videos of him speaking at rallies and it's like unhinged, but it, but it's clearly resonating with these people. So it's just very confusing. Like, is it the repet? Sometimes I think it's like the repetition of him just like repeating, repeating, repeating these phrases that I think maybe works on people. I think that's true. I also I also think sometimes it's not that complicated, like in the sense that like the base that goes to these events, these rallies, they love him. They eat it up because the racial grievance, the racism, the misogyny, the hearkening back to some bygone era that never existed makes them feel safe, makes them feel comfortable, right? These are people mm-hmm. that, that feel disconnected from their country despite their incredible success and privilege. And this and Trump tells them they're a victim and it feels really good. Um, then there, then there's everybody else. And there are lots of people that aren't Trump super fans, like, a bit, like the base that goes to these rallies, kind of the, the people that might have voted for Trump or voted for Hillary, they might come back to Biden, they might stick with Trump, they think he did a good job on the economy, they don't like the tweets, they don't care enough about racism. <laughs> but right. that, 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 that doesn't mean that they love his most uh, heinous rhetoric, right? There are a fair amount of number of people like that. And you know, sometimes I think it's just a really simple explanation. They don't see a problem with the kind of unhinged extremist rhetoric coming out of these rallies because nobody tells them about it. It's not in the stories, mm. it's not like, just the act of imposing a narrative on a Trump rally is helpful to Trump. Like Trump came to Michigan today and spoke about the importance of the economy and controlling the borders. Like that is 
that is giving Trump a story that he really didn't tell. Really what he did is he got up for two hours, yelled, talked about how ugly some opponent of his was, reminisced about having sex on a boat in the 70s, talked about punching protesters, weaved in a heinous thing about immigrants, talked about uh, uh, talked about how much he likes Mike Pence, then talked about how he shouldn't have picked Mike Pence. Like just a rambling, incoherent right. two-hour thing. And then it's, subscri- then it's described in this cogent way. So that to me is part of the problem too. Like the, just the act of of filtering his words helps him mm-hmm. helps him uh, helps him find a message. Yeah, you said something that really struck with me is like that he makes them feel safe, and I feel like we I've just been craving that. Like how much I would crave to like see an announcement from a president whose rhetoric and demeanor and just like policies like make me feel safe, <laughs> and how much I crave that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's. It's really sad. It's really sad to feel like this person is meant to represent us and of course doesn't and can't and doesn't doesn't care. And 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 I do think like, you know, I think sometimes people, especially on Twitter, like they yell at the New York Times, they 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 yell at the media. I do it myself. And actually even 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 people being like, "Oh, what if Trump doesn't leave? What if he doesn't leave?" And and really I think what people are saying is in some way not, "Oh, I can't believe Trump is doing this. It's more, why doesn't everyone understand how wrong this is? Mm-hmm. Why is this close? There's this there's this great right. uh, Norm MacDonald joke, which is uh, uh, Germany declared war on the whole world and you wouldn't believe it, it was close. And it's like, yeah. like why is this fucking close? Like, right. like yeah. Trump at 40% is a crisis, right? This monster appealing mm-hmm. to this many people is a crisis. How... How much did we not understand just how broken this country was that someone like this could get close, let alone win? So that to me, I think, is part of the pain. It's this it's 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 the feeling like you don't know your country. Well, um, would you like to play a game show? Sure. That'd be (laughs) no, no. Let's keep talking about the most depressive, depressing political era. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we got to remember we're all more resilient than we think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And John's used to abrupt tonal shifts, Absolutely. I think, from love it or leave it. You so. bet. <laughs> so this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many questions as you want, and then you have to tell me what you would do in that scenario. And then, much like Trump, I will arbitrarily decide if I love it or hate it and uh, want you thrown in jail. Okay. Yeah. And, okay. We, and we are against each other. Got it. So we're opposite each other. I'm okay. so ready. Okay. Let me tuck my we new probably... hair. I have, I have to tuck my, I didn't have to use to do this, but now I have to tuck my hair behind my ears. It's, it's the Beautiful. quarantine look. Yeah. Okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Okay. Your partner of 16 years is accused of cheating on you in a best-selling memoir written by their ex. Your partner denies it. Would you stay with this accused cheater? Everyone, including Oprah, thinks the book is true. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay, wait. Wow. Okay, so we've been together for 16 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are they still friendly with the ex who wrote the book? They've kept in touch. Is this the ex's and, first book? Um, they are a personality, and they've done, like, op-eds and stuff, but this is their first full book. Mm-hmm. What is the book about? It's like a it's a memoir about their life and a big part of it is having this ongoing affair with your partner. Now let me ask you this. Is the partner more famous than the author? 
Ooh. Yes. Wow. So the so the author Wait. is drafting a little bit off of my partner's fame. This is getting specific. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. They're, the person in the book is saying that that they cheated. I thought they were saying. I thought it was like that they were saying, "Oh, this ex of mine cheated on their partner." I didn't realize that they're saying they were sleeping with the ex. Yes. That's why it's so scandalous. And how? Wow. And, and 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 can you tell us a little bit more about the denial that we're getting because. Like that's important. Sure. I just I need to understand how it was denied. They basically were like, I can't believe that they did this. Of course they would do this. They are still not over us having broken up and me picking you. They're just trying to get more publicity. But thank God that you trust me in our relationship and know that it's not true. And did they release like a press release being like, I have never cheated on Gabby. This is a lie. Uh, yes, but everyone thinks that they're lying, including Oprah. <laughs> How, um, okay. Is there any is there any any evidence beyond simply the two parties disagreeing for one version of reality or the other? Are there any receipts? Any restaurants so, out? Any hotel? Any, any hotel dalliances? Your partner was spotted going into the author's hotel room, but they deny that anything sexual happened. What is the reason for the hotel visit? They remained friends and, you know, the, the author was in town and they, you know, went to hang out. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there any world in which is there any world in which I could spin this and be like, I can't believe I was cheated on. I'm the victim. Now everyone loves me. I'm like, you yeah, know, of course. But then can you I lose Jennifer your partner. Ani- can I Jennifer Aniston this into like if you choose that path, but then your partner will leave you. Or you will leave your partner. That's fine. But like, am I more famous and I get like more press Ugh. and stuff? Everyone just thinks that you're uh, an idiot for not knowing what was going on. Oh, I see. Okay. I've, I have my decision. I've thought okay. about it. I've thought about <laughs> okay. it. Here's my thinking. I think it is important that we se- that we separate out the health of the rela- – I think that we're combining two things. The health of a relationship and the the pain of, of public humiliation. Uh, sure. I think we have to disregard the public humiliation. It is not uh, important. It is not real. It exists nowhere. You can't find it. It has no weight. It has no mass. <laughs> so, sure. so my only question is about the health of the relationship. My partner is denying it. Uh, and I think that I would have to make a decision to trust that denial, but keep one ear to the, keep one ear to the ground. Keep one ear to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> do that, do that thing where your thumb Print open their phone as well. <laughs> I was not aware of that. Was not aware of that. Yeah, no. I'm gonna just um, hold the hold the face. Get them over get him their sl- face while they're sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> get well, in there. Well, it turns out that they did not cheat on you with that author, but they have cheated on you a ton of other <laughs> no, times. No! Oh my god. Okay, so John, there's always a fucking twist. I didn't think and about it. I didn't know. Al- I didn't know about the twist. <laughs> There's always a twist, and it's always devastating. Devastating. Fuck, devastating. Allison. Devastating. <laughs> well, lesson learned. Lesson learned. <sighs> well, please apply it to this next hypothetical. Okay. This one is, are they an alien or just rude? So okay. like alien from outer space. Mm-hmm. The president of the United States announces that they will no longer be meeting with other foreign leaders in person because it's too awkward. Are they an alien or just rude? They are seven feet tall. <laughs> okay, wait, I'm sorry. What's, what's awkward? Like, what's happening that they're awkward? 
they just feel like social anxiety and like they think it's too awkward. But they managed to become president. Yes. Well, is that that much of a stretch? Well, yeah. I just think it's a lot of there's a lot of human interaction on the journey to becoming president. Can, let me ask you this: mm-hmm. Is it possible that this that this president was human, but at some point was replaced before making this request? Did he get it? Stop! Nailed it! No! Are you kidding me? <laughs> yes! No! Come yes. on! Yes! Nailed it! <laughs> Nailed it! One hypotheticals? Boom. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. It was a regular human. And no, and what's weird is nobody noticed the president went from <laughs> six ten to seven feet. Oh my god. I'm so proud of myself. Oh I'm my so god. proud of myself. <laughs> I'm so mad. I mean, in I'm reality, just... I just liked your answer, so I pretended that's what the answer was the whole time. I'm so but mad. I think that still counts. She doesn't have the answers planned. I want you to know she has the hypotheticals oh, written down. But I feel like but, you could have. Oh. I feel like you didn't need to tell me that. You could have just let me leave here so knowing, sorry. thinking so highly of myself. Well, uh, Gabby would have been too upset. That no, you know what? I She's lose too competitive. I lose every time. You didn't even guess lose, on the first one. No, I didn't even the first one. Oh, I didn't say if I would stay or not. I probably no, you wanted to just become famous. Yeah, I think okay. I answer to every right. hypothetical. <laughs> My answer to every hypothetical is how do I get more famous? And also, yes, I would lie. So, so go on. Is the last one what I think it is? Is it that game? No, the, oh, the last one is are you a terrible parent? Oh, okay. Your 12-year-old child refuses to write a paper for class about what they did over the summer. So you offer to do it for them. You then write three pages about your child capturing farts in a jar and then trying to feed the farts to the dog. The teacher has all the children read the papers out loud. Are you a terrible parent? The other kids swap your kid's name for a fart sound for the next seven years, but they never refuse to do their work again. So this is to teach them not to ask you to do their work? Yes. Wow. Wow. It's a tough lesson, but one they had to learn. Well, wow. I, I mean, look, a lot of ways to teach that lesson. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is a specific direction. Obviously, a good lesson, right? The lesson mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. Do your work. You do your own work. Mm-hmm. Don't ask mm-hmm. others right. to do it. However, suggesting to your child that you will do the work, but then doing the work poorly to prove that lesson feels like a stretch unless I'm missing a twist. And as I've learned, I surely am. <laughs> now here's my question how does your child feel about you after that are they mad at you are, are they holding a grudge uh for all the years that they're just called fart sound Good like question. has it ruined your relationship well fart sound at first <laughs> is very upset is the kid's but, name fart sound now well the kid's name is <laughs> okay <laughs> and so at first the kid is game. is mad at you but then they realize that you taught them such an important lesson. And through the resilience they learned after seven years of intense bullying, they went on to become the president of the United States. I, I think you're not a terrible parent. I think you did the right thing. I think, I will say, I think that, I think this is terrible parenting. And you know what? That Kennedy dad maybe, uh, you know, got those boys to compete and fight and, you know, JFK got to be uh, president as a result, but it really screwed Teddy up. And I think it screwed the rest of them up too. And they're still kind of, they're still a little bit, 
They've always struggled. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think it's not worth it. I think any kind of parenting that leads a child to have a hole in their heart so big, only the presidency can fill it, you know? Yeah. So it's a good it's a good a point no. because later an alien takes over I'm their about body. To say. <laughs> ah! Somehow I never see the X-Men universe you're building coming. These are part the of the, the extended yes. universe. The hypotheticals extended universe. Rocky yeah. Raccoon, very deep. It's the mummy. Mm -hmm. Batman. <laughs> one universe. Yep. Dracula. Mm -hmm. Yep. Avatar. It's all the one. Simpsons, it's all one. HBO Max. Actually, this is all just the Avatar it's universe. All in the HBO Max universe, the Quibi family. So, <laughs> Mrs. Oh Maisel God. missing an arm, part of it. Part of it. She and she was the the mom that wrote the paper, and it's all coming together. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This was amazing. Thank you for having me. Where can people find out more about your work? Well, you can find just the internet, the internet, you know, uh, pod save America podcast, love it or leave it podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at my name. That's where the content, you can find all the content, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what life's all about. It's about finding that content and enjoying it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I was on an episode of love it or leave it. So if you want to listen to that, that's one, right. Yeah. Like, go wow. Check I out, love yeah. Gabby. If you yeah, go look, yeah. at, go start. Start with the, See, with the Gabby Dunn episode. Promoting herself of course. yet again. <laughs> you have to promote. You got to promote. Look, <laughs> always be promoting. It is 2020. Thank you. If you don't promote you, who will promote you? You know? Yep. And yeah. It's very true. Be the PR person you want to see in the world. You know what I mean? I, do I not <laughs> always say that? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You don't say it quite as eloquently as that. Well, but I'm yes, not that a speechwriter. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. This was this awesome. This was great. Thank you so much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about exposure therapy. Ooh, ah. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 X. X, baby. You were a little delayed, so you made up for it with some flair. Yeah, I mean, I what happened was I was like, ugh, do we want to do this every time? And like, how can I make it good every time? But then like you sing the international question every time. So I don't know why I'm overthinking my part. No, there's something nice to routine and consistency. I just thought, oh God, like midway through, I was like, am I being boring? Which is like me in every situation. You think that in every situation? <laughs> I try to uh, I try to be as interesting as possible, although trying to be interesting is in its in its own way an oxymoron. So here we are. Yes. Okay. So we won't dive into that, but <laughs> <laughs> that's for another therapy another session. Okay. Time. Keep going. Uh, so this week, I wanted to talk about exposure therapy. So you did this for real, real, real realsies. So talk about it. Exposure therapy is like the basic premise of it is that you are exposing yourself to a stimuli that you that causes you anxiety or discomfort. Right. So it's a super, super effective type of therapy, um, especially for people with OCD. Uh, and I, I also think anxiety in general um, or phobias. It's super used for phobias. And so like an example is like when I was a kid, like I went with my like, therapist to the Hudson River and like put mud on my legs 
and like because that was to combat therapy. OCD to combat my like contamination cleanliness OCD but then there was stuff right. where like I was with my parents and I would drop a stuffed animal and my parents would make me like pick it up and not wash it and like that's exposure mm. therapy mm-hmm. um but there's like a lot of different levels to it so there's also this thing called systematic desensitization where like you basically like let's say that you're afraid of bugs right Mm -hmm. so you create what's called a fear hierarchy and you would list um from least scary to most scary different experiences so like your least scary experience might be imagining a photo of a bug in your therapist's waiting room Right. Then your second least scary thing would be that magazine is now in the room with you, but it's still just a photo of a bug. Then you like jump ahead and suddenly there's like a bug in the corner. Now there's a bug on your chair. Now there's a bug on you. Okay. And so then you, you create this fear hierarchy with your therapist. And then the therapist teaches you relaxation techniques. Because the premise is that if you're rela- you can't be both anxious and relaxed at the same time. Okay. So that combats kind of my whole existence, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, like you would go through the fear hierarchy, either with this um, example, most likely um, imaginal. So like your therapist isn't going to actually get a spider, but you're going to be imagining the spider. Imagining a spider. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's something called in vivo, which is like in real life. And that would be like if they actually did bring a spider in. Interesting. So basically you're tricking your body because you're doing these relaxation techniques between the steps of the fear hierarchy. So you're getting yourself like used to all these different steps and your body is now used to being calm when those things happen. Huh? What you're describing is the opposite of conversion therapy, by the way. I don't know about conversion therapy. I had to research it for something I was writing, and it's the exact techniques, but used in the opposite way. So it'll be like, they'll show you a picture of two girls kissing and then slap you. Like, That's aversion like, therapy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's like uh, the e- exact opposite of what, you're, of what you're using, but it's the same idea, which is so wild. But like right. what you're doing is like... Uh, for a good for good versus for evil. <laughs> they do do aversion therapy for good. So like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, a lot of times there's like elements of aversion therapy there. Mm-hmm. Like with that drug antibus, is that how you say it? Where like it, it makes you vomit if you drink. So they'll give you that drug. And then when you drink alcohol, it makes you violently ill. So then you stop wanting to drink alcohol. In theory. To be honest, the first time I had vodka, I was so sick and I threw up. I was a teenager. And now it's like, no vodka for me, please. So just one bad experience can really stick in your brain. But so exposure therapy, obviously, like in in a therapy setting is great and super helpful. And like something that I think I actually should have done a lot more of as a kid. Mm. But there's also just like elements of it that you can do to yourself all the time. Well, so you were just talking about like if you have social anxiety going to parties. Right. So like that's you should think of that as like exposure therapy that you're like exposing yourself to something that makes you anxious. But knowing that like the more that you do that, the better it will get. There's also a type of exposure therapy that's pretty um, controversial called flooding where you are like so let's say that like 
you're um, afraid again of a bug. And instead of like taking all of these steps, you're like thrown into a room filled with bugs for half an hour. <laughs> oh <laughs> my like, God. It's, the thing, it's like the thing that you are most afraid of for an extended period of time with the premise being that like you're incapable of, of being that heightened in anxiety for forever. So eventually you will calm down. You tire yourself out. Oh my God, that's so terrifying. Because I could also see where that would make me, because I hate ants. I hate ants so much. I hate mm -hmm. them. They're the worst bug. Fuck mm -hmm. you, ants. And like, to me, I, I would lose my mind. But like, maybe I would lose my mind so hard that I would come back around to being fine. I don't know. So sometimes it works, but sometimes it like causes them to be more afraid or like a PTSD Ugh. experience. So it's, I, I'm not a big fan of this idea of flooding. <laughs> I think if you're like in a park and there's an ant, I would like urge you to let it crawl on your hand. No, this, I can't, I will, I will die. I, there was one ant in my bed. You should have seen me. I like almost set the entire house on fire. Like I so was, you have a I phobia. Would, I hate them. So like, yeah. I, but do you want to live like this or could you could, you could not, you could, Get better. Put one ant on my hand and see what happens. Yeah. Or it, honestly, yeah. you can start even smaller. You can just start with someone else holding an ant near you. Looking at a picture of an ant. Looking at a picture of an ant. Yeah. Because that's another way. It's like, it's called modeling. So like, I would do the thing that you're afraid of. And then you would see like, oh, I'm actually okay. Are you okay, though? Are I you? I hold an ant. <laughs> I know, but I would... Uh... Because the idea then, is you do it and you don't die and everything's fine. Yeah, it's like you're you're having an irrational reaction to something. Right. You're having a fear response when you're not actually in danger. I see. Yeah, but what if I what if I hold it and that's the one time an ant kills someone? I that's that's not a thing that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can get killed by many ants, but one ant you wouldn't get killed by, right? Correct. Correct. Oh, I hate them so much. I think it's really cool because obviously it's best done under the supervision of a of a therapist, but it's also just like these little challenges that you can give yourself all the time. Mm -hmm. So like getting sugar for me was exposure therapy because I was so afraid of contamination Mess. and outside yeah. and outside germs and like the fact that like she walks on the ground and everything. And so mm -hmm. I had like a somewhat long transition with her where like at the beginning I was fine with her in my house if I'd wipe down her paws and butt, right? Mm -hmm. But then if I like went out with her and she would try to like sit on my lap and I hadn't wiped down her paws and butt, that was really hard for me. And maybe I like wouldn't let her do it or yeah. I would like go to a bathroom to wipe her down. And then I settled and then like eventually I got to a place where I can go out with her and like I will let her sit on me even if I haven't wiped her, her paws and butt. It was like over time. Yeah. So you kind of can do it like, right, like going to parties, like go to this party and like, say I'm going to stay for an hour. Yeah. And then like you're kind of doing it yourself or like um, go to this party and talk to one new person mm -hmm. and then you achieve it. And you're like, I talked to one new person. It doesn't have to be a good interaction. Exactly. You just have to be like, you know what? I'm OK with however this turns out. Yeah, I think it's a really great I think it's a really great way to reframe uh, social interactions if you have social anxiety where yeah. it's like, you, you realize that like every time you go and do that and you force yourself to interact, like you're actually like you're you're helping yourself. You're you're therapizing yourself yeah. in that moment. And yeah, like, it can be hard because people are like, I just have this thing. Leave me alone. You know what I mean? Like they're like, that's what you said to me a minute ago about ants. 
Why are you forcing me? But it's also like, it would be like ants are everywhere. Like it would be good for me to not like see an ant and want to throw up. But like, yeah, that sucks. It sucks to be that irrationally afraid of something that you're going to interact with a lot. Yeah. And like knowing, knowing that like, this is a proven thing that works, I think is so empowering. That like knowing that eventually if you let that ant be on your hand long enough, you will be okay. Yeah, and if it doesn't work right away, it's not that it's not working or you failed. It's like the idea is that it's repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. Absolutely. You can, you know what's interesting is you can apply this to polyamory too. Because I think sometimes you're like catastrophizing and it's like the worst case scenario. Oh my God, my partner like could like flirt with someone else. I'm freaking out, I'm freaking out. But if you like, they do flirt with someone else and they stay with you and everything's fine. And it's, then you're like, oh. And then the next time they kiss someone else and you're like, okay, okay. And like, it doesn't have to jump right into like, they're fucking other people. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times it's like you're using like small bits of exposure therapy in order to like open up a relationship. My relationship with my parents, too. You do it in small doses. <laughs> <laughs> but so then let's say something like fl- like flying, if you're afraid of flying. Mm-hmm. They now have like these virtual reality treatments. What? Yeah. So there's a lot of now like exposure therapy through VR. So it'll like you'll pretend you're on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And they just or have like- the flight. The flight goes well. Like yeah, but like, you know, because it's a little harder to like your therapist is like going to get on a plane with you and like take off, you know, like, mm-hmm. but like through these VR experiments, like you can be on an airplane, you could be in a field filled with dogs if you're afraid of dogs. Like, you know, like, I think it's also yeah. a really good thing to know if you have young kids, because a lot of phobias come up around like seven or eight. Mm. And so like knowing that like, it's not going to fuck up your kid if they're afraid of dogs to expose them to dogs, dogs, it's actually like way better to actually expose them to the dog. Mm-hmm. And like, you can do that in steps. Like you don't go, okay, I'm going to put you on this dog's back. But like, right, right, right. You know, maybe your friend who has a dog, you agree to like meet in a park together and the kid won't be anywhere near the dog, but the dog will be there. Yeah, you know, and yeah. Then next time the dog is like off leash. So it's not next to the kid, but it's a little closer. And then the yeah. next time the kid pets, you know, like it's better to push your kid through these phobias than to just like a work around it. So your kid never sees a dog. Well, that's the thing, right? Because I think the instinct is to enable the instinct is like, I don't want to upset this person or my kid mm-hmm. or my friend or my partner or whatever. So I'm going to work around it. But like if your parents had worked around your OCD that they would have enabled it to get worse. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't have like left my room. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to function. Well, Cheyenne had a lot of behavioral issues. And like a lot of times my parents were just like, it's not worth it to fight with her. But like, I think it would have benefited both of us if like they had, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think I mean, they did a lot of times. And let me tell you, Cheyenne's a tough one. Like nobody if you can avoid fighting with her, you do. But, but that's her con- that's her conditioning you. So that's, that's the her thing. being when we so were, she knows that if she acts like that, then people will leave her alone. Yep. So then yep. she keeps acting like that. Yep. So that's the thing. Like if it's your kid, it's hard to say to someone like with a difficult kid that doesn't want to do anything. It's hard to be like, no, you have to force them because it's like, oh, what an ordeal. And it's exhausting. But like mm-hmm. you kind of have to. Yeah. And people oh, don't like so people tiring, who don't though. like dogs. Yep. Yeah. And it's a lot. But even just like the fact that you're walking through life so afraid of this insect that is everywhere. I hate him. But like, I hate him. Let's work on it. You know what my big fear is? 
What? That there's an ant in my hair and I don't know. And, and what would that mean? That there's an ant in my hair and I didn't know about it. And why is that so bad? Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why, but I don't like it. It makes me upset. But why? Because <sighs> it got it tricked. It got on me and I don't know when it got on me and it tricked me. I don't know. What if it bites me or something? Okay. The idea that I, the reason I don't like ants is because with a bigger bug, like a tarantula, you would see it. You would feel it on you and you would see it. But an ant, an ant could have been there for hours. You would never even know. And what is it doing? It's just sitting there. Gross. But then when you take the ant off of your head, you're back to normal. Nothing has changed. The ant hasn't hurt you. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it seems. (sighs) But do you see how like exposure therapy could help you through this? Yes, exactly, because nothing's going to happen. Right. So once you have had the ants on your head for 10 minutes and it's your worst fear, and then you're like, oh, okay, I had an ant on my head. Who cares? I'll think about it. I'll think about it. The next time for I see our an our 100th ant- episode, Gabby will record the whole thing with an ant on her head. <laughs> yeah, for our 100th episode, I will touch an ant. How about that? <laughs> I, will, I, will touch, I will touch an ant. <laughs> you know, people have like ant farms in their houses. Those people are insane. Yes. That's this is your phobia. No, 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 no. I'm right. Having an ant farm means something is wrong with you. Oh my god. <laughs> we got a lot of work to do off this podcast. All right, Tamika, come on in and, and share your phobias. Tamika, if you have an ant farm, you're fired. <laughs> you you do not have the power to fire her. <laughs> What's your phobia? Um, I don't know if this counts, but like first dates are terrifying for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I like will get physical anxiety thinking about going on a first date. So what would be great for you would be to have like five first dates in one week and just like boom, 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 boom. That's the equivalent of Gabby's reaction to like staring at an ant. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds awful. Tamika, I'll go on five dates for you if you touch one ant. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I would do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> I would also do that in a heartbeat. Hey, this is why it feels like a therapy session. It's like Al- Allison's giving us great therapy advice. I <laughs> deal with our phobias. Yeah. But I think it's just so it's so freeing as someone who's been so afraid of so many things like and I continue to be. But like every time I can knock one off the list, it's such a relief. Mm. So I want that relief for you guys as well. Well, that's sweet. Yeah. And listeners couldn't see this, but like during the session um, I was watching on Zoom, Allison had like one fist on her chin, just like giving Gabby the best (laughs) therapy advice. It was very, very professional. (laughs) And I was making faces like, no. (laughs) Um, well, you should go on a bunch of first dates because like, okay, what's the worst thing that happens? They're bad. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have no fear when it comes to romance. Uh, and I probably have more social anxiety than you too. So it's a combination of like social anxiety and fear of rejection, which I think you don't have romantically. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it just sounds like the worst experience I could ever have doing like five first dates in a week. But by five, by, by date five, it won't, you just like, your body will be like too physically exhausted to like make it as big of a deal as date one was. Exactly. Hmm. 
And then with the rejection thing, you have to just like go down the logic trail of like, okay, so this person rejected me. What does that mean? One person out of like millions of people, billions of people didn't want to go on a second date with me. But it's not even just being rejected. It's having to reject someone else. Mm -hmm. That's, that's also a lot of pressure. Like I hate hurting people's feelings. But then you have to say, okay, I'm one person in a billions of people who's, you know, like, who am I to be so important to this person that I'm going to ruin their lives because I I don't want to go on a second date with them. Mm. I think now would be a great time for you to be on dating apps and just to, to just to be talking to as many people at once. And I think it will like, I think that would be good exposure therapy for you during this pandemic. Probably. Because it's very low stakes. You don't have to actually meet them, but you could just get used to like, the you know the the dating app banter and talking yeah. to people and you know figuring out when you want to stop talking to someone when you do want to like give them your actual phone number maybe actually FaceTime like I think this w- could be a really cool fun interesting time for you you are going to be a great therapist <laughs> <laughs> no pressure to meet up exactly that's true that's true okay you know since Gabby looked at a picture of an ant I will get on one dating app <laughs> I think that's a fair trade. I love that. Yay! (laughs) In lieu of a traditional show rating, we just wanted to say, you want to take it away, Allison? Uh, Fuck the police. Black Lives (laughs) Matter. And stay safe out there, guys. Oh, wow. I didn't know what you were going to say, but I'm very very into it. (laughs) And check our show notes for, for resources. Yes. Okay, love you guys. Love you guys. Thank you so much to John Lovett for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon. And our supervising producer is Josephine Martirano. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. So I'm going to need to see some screenshots, Tamika. <laughs> Stitcher.